Welcome to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Heyman, a collaborative podcast with Pass It On Network. This program is brought to you by all of Community Services. Seniors deserve to have a fulfilling life with dignity and respect, but as we transition into our elderhood years, this doesn't always happen. Join us today as we discuss some of the most important issues that seniors face and provide much-needed answers to your questions. Now, here is Phyllis Amon. Welcome to Senior Straight Talk, where we present informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. I'm Phyllis Amon, your host. The show, which began in September of 2019, was formerly known as Voices for Elder Care Advocacy. The library of all of the episodes can be found on the Voice America Empowerment Channel under the name Seniors Straight Talk and can be downloaded on all popular podcast platforms. The show is now also syndicated on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Please remember to like, click, and share the episodes. You can hear the short news tidbits of interest to seniors, their families, and the general public on my YouTube channel at Phyllis Amon Associates. When visiting the channel, please remember to share and subscribe to Senior News for today. My two courses can be found on my website at www.phyllisamonassociates.com. For those listeners who I say are in SOS mode, stressed, overwhelmed, and stretched, Resilience Toolbox Secrets will help you capture what I say are the three R's, recharge, reset, and recommit. Family members considering taking on the role of caregivers or those just beginning the caregiver journey can find valuable information in my latest course, A Caregiving Guide for Caregivers, The Basics. My new course, Coming Alive with Music and Communicating Effectively with Persons Having Dementia, who I'm proud to say I created with Dan Cohen, founder of Music and Memory and Write to Music, will also be available in the near future. My latest book, Dignity and Respect, Our Aging Parents Getting What They Deserve, is available on Amazon in both paperback and ebook formats, and I'm anticipating an audio book coming out in the near future. Dr. Bill Thomas, who wrote the foreword for the book, <clears throat> addresses critical information about how we care for and treat our elder citizens in our families, our communities, in nursing homes, and the many assisted living residences around the country. And I hope you'll purchase a copy and encourage friends and colleagues to do the same. Senior Straight Talk is proud of the collaborative partnership with the Pass It On Network, a global peer learning network of positive aging advocates and a member of the United Nations Open-Ended Working Group on Aging. Seniors Straight Talk and the Pass It On Network will continue bringing our listeners informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. I'm also glad to welcome our sponsor, Olive Community Services, a nonprofit organization in Fullerton, California, dedicated to providing culturally appropriate services to the diverse senior population. I'm grateful to Olive President Rubina Chaudhry and the entire team at Olive Community Services for their continued support. And before we begin, I have to thank Peter DeGear of DeGear Therapy Services, who is a colleague and consultant specializing in rehabilitation services in nursing homes. And now for today's guest, Alex Spanko, who covers the post-acute and long-term sector for Skilled Nursing News, a trade publication he helped to launch in 2017 with a particular focus on policy and finance. His work has also appeared in the Boston Globe, the Boston Business Journal, and the Patriot Ledger of Quincy, Massachusetts. 
He holds a bachelor's degree in journalism from Emerson College and lives in Chicago. And I'm happy to say that Alex and I are alumna of the same school, Emerson College. That was my undergraduate school, but it's of course many years apart. That being said, I'm glad to say hello to Alex today. So hi, Alex, how are you doing? I am doing great. I'm wearing my uh, Emerson t-shirt today for oh. the occasion. Decided to decided to break it out. It's been a while since I've worn it, so I figured it was appropriate. Oh, how cool. But, purple and gold, as I remember, right? Purple purple and gold. Go Lions, yes. Right. And and actually, purple is the color uh, for Alzheimer's and dementia, so how suitable for this uh, conversation, though it's not about Alzheimer's and dementia, it is about older adults and nursing homes and all of that jazz. Um mm-hmm. And you had a recent article about it, which really prompted me to contact you about having a conversation on Senior Straight Talk, because I thought it was really a great article. And you had tremendous insights. As a journalist, you have different insights than people I normally speak with who come from the elder care space. So why don't you talk a little bit about uh, skilled nursing news, what it is, who is it for, and then about the article and your observations. Yeah, so just uh, quickly, we are Skilled Nursing News. We're a Chicago-based trade publication, part of the Aging Media Network. And we provide in-depth news for pretty much anyone who is interested in the business operations and policy side of nursing homes in the United States. Our readers are uh, operators, they're investors, they're third-party vendors. Uh, Increasingly, they are uh, policymakers in states across the country. And what we try to do is provide unbiased, um, really transparent information about what is happening in the industry, where it is going, um, and uh, really just trying to provide, shed more light on the world of post-acute and long-term care, because it's, I think it's one of the more misunderstood care categories. um, And this really kind of dovetails nicely into the article that you mentioned. And uh, part of my work as a journalist means that I spend a lot of time reading uh, local news stories around the country. You know, we are a national publication, so we don't necessarily cover every little state uh, regulation and every little state trend. But I have a Google alert for nursing home and skilled nursing that I read every day. um, And it's usually the most depressing part of my day because it's usually all, uh, particularly over the past year, it's been all about the pandemic. Um, but I read a lot of these stories and I notice some sort of bigger picture trends and that's what inspired me to write this piece. And it's basically that in the, the way that nursing homes are portrayed, whether it's the operation or the investors, it's usually uh, presented as an either or kind of situation. There's this, there's this feeling when you read the stories that if it, were, if it weren't for these handful, this handful of bad actors or if it wasn't for this handful of bad decisions, everything would have been just fine. We wouldn't have seen the, the tragedy that we've seen in nursing homes. We wouldn't have seen the historic problems we've seen in nursing homes leading up to this point. And it usually boils down to an us versus them kind of uh, mentality. Uh, And this has been particularly true given uh, Andrew Cuomo in the news. He has kind of become the scapegoat in New York for sending patients into nursing facilities. And it really got me to think uh, without a COVID test in last March, uh, to clarify, obviously, I'm sure everyone listening has at least a passing familiarity with the story. It has not gone away. It will not go away. Um, (laughs) No, it will not. But the bigger, you know, I was reading particularly about that. And, you know, there are people who are saying, oh, he is personally responsible for the deaths of 15,000 people in New York. He, uh, you know, it, we, he needs to resign and he protected the nursing facilities uh, with these liability shields. 
And I understand why the story has kind of coalesced the way it has, because as I wrote in the article and as someone with journalism training and, uh, you know, you don't need journalism training to know how to tell a good story. And a good story needs a hero and a villain. So in this case, we've got the villain and that's Cuomo and the, the nursing home lobby. Um, and we've got the heroes and it's the lawmakers who are trying to uh, hold him responsible and uh, reinstate liability, uh, protect, uh, sorry, reinstate uh, the right for families to sue, which I believe they have accomplished. My point with the article is not that any of these people are wrong. It's that everyone is actually right about what is wrong with senior care. Um, And so I focused this first article, I focused on the reimbursement issue. And one of the things that is very frustrating to me is to see how the reimbursement issue is usually boiled down to the industry saying we need more money and uh, resident advocates saying, no, you don't. And my point is that when the argument gets boiled down to those two opposing thoughts, nothing ever changes because nothing ever moves. The status quo, it's very easy for the status quo to remain in force. Right. Everybody just points fingers at the next person. I mean, I've been on the inside working in nursing homes as a speech pathologist, as I've said many times. So yes, it's easy to point to the owners or the providers for the ills of what's happening in the nursing home, but it's really, it's really not just them. It's, it's a combined effort of ills, actually. Exactly. And, and the point that I was trying to make is that you can take actions against specific people. You know, you can, you can throw Andrew Cuomo out of office tomorrow if you'd like. That's not going to fix senior care. You can sue. And the lawsuit issue, and I want to be very clear about this uh, because I have faced criticism over this. Uh, I'm not saying that people should not be able to sue over bad care. I'm not saying that it's necessarily the best idea, both from a PR perspective and from a reform perspective, to say we should not, we need these liability protections. But my point is that you can sue bad nursing home operators, and that's not going to fix the underlying problems in terms of reimbursement, in terms of regulation, in terms of policy. My point is you need to have a plan. It needs to be lawsuits and. It can't just be lawsuits and then we're done. And my big fear is because the lawsuit issue fits into that hero villain dichotomy that once you get really, you know, once you harness all that anger and you focus all this anger about what's happening in nursing homes and you focus it just on the lawsuit issue, there's not going to be any political capital. There's not going to be any public anger. There's not going to be any pressure to do anything more than that. And so the point I was trying to make is that, you know, nursing homes have good lawyers too. Part of the reason why there's all of this opacity around nursing home ownership is because that's been the reform model has been reformed by civil lawsuit. So instead of reacting by, oh, fixing things, they just kind of go further and further into these webs of uh, LLCs and opco propco arrangements. And, you know, I just think it's foolish to think, oh, if we only sue, if, if we only, you know, sue these bad operators, then everyone else will straighten up and fly right. We're talking about, for better or worse, a business, and we're talking about business people who think they're, you know, everybody thinks they're the smartest guy in the room. I can guarantee <laughs> you that the reaction to seeing your peer go down in a big lawsuit would not necessarily be, I'm going to change. It's just going to be, I'm going to hire better lawyers. I'm going to go even deeper and deeper behind these webs of uh, anonymous LLCs. And so I, I, I think it's fine. You know, I think if that's your only avenue of justice, I don't want that closed off to people because I think, it, you know, there, if there really was truly substandard care and these facilities were not providing the standard of care, they should face punishments. But my bigger point is that, like, you cannot just stop with that because it's not going to fix the underlying problems. That has to be step one. Then there has to be steps two through 27. After right. That. right. I, I agree 500%. And uh, you started out saying about how people pointed to the providers and saying they did all these 
things wrong during the pandemic. And I have said many times, and I've written about it as well, uh, nursing home providers never would have needed this amount of PPE. They wouldn't have anticipated it. They wouldn't have seen a need for it. They would have had no place to store it. Uh, they couldn't have seen this kind of infection in their, in their buildings because it's, it's calculated based on an average and it's uh, per month. And th this was nothing like that. So now what happened after the outbreak or trying to get PPE and who was willing to pay for what, that's another issue. You know, whether they were willing to pay for it or they couldn't get it. And uh, those are all different issues. But the reality is they never would have had it. So you can't really point to them and say they should have known about this. Yes, there are issues with an infection preventionist. That's a whole other thing. It used to be a full-time position, then it went to part-time, then it was sufficient time, which means that it's not a person dedicated to that and their training may not always be up to snuff. Uh, that Could that have had a minor uh, contribution? Possibly, but the reality is and you started off by saying this about the the residents going from the patients going from the hospital to the nursing home. Well, that that may have not been the best decision. I'm just saying, just no, that, was, just that, right? No, 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 no. That was definitely not the best decision. But one of the things that I find frustrating, especially about the Cuomo story in particular, is I think people try to connect dots that aren't there. There's a criticism that I see where it's like, oh, well, the nursing home lobby. Uh, is a big do is a big donor to Cuomo, so he did what they wanted in terms of giving them the patients, and then he also did what they wanted by giving them uh, the blanket immunity, and 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 that stuff doesn't really hold up. I mean, the the big driver actually of the lobbying group was the hospital association. The state hospital association was the primary driver of that. They are involved in nursing homes, but they're not the primary nursing home lobby. Right, and. Uh, again, let's not get in the weeds of the liability issue. I think I've said my piece on that, but let's get into the the, the order uh, to send residents to the hospital. Cuomo himself was not alone in this. The federal government had this idea for a little while and it, people forget, you know, it's been a year. So this time last year, this week last year, the big, this is when we all learned about uh, flattening the curve, right? Right. Uh, and so the big worry was all of these hospitals are going to become overwhelmed with COVID cases. That, right. Um, you know, we've seen this happen, you know, the news out of China where, where the first outbreaks were, you know, you've got overwhelmed prime, um, acute care, primary care, we, you know, we have to make sure that we don't do that. And that was the whole logic behind the lockdown, right? Everything was guided around not Correct. making sure the hospitals had free beds. And so Correct. this was part of that. There was Seema Verma, who was the, the, the administrator of CMS at the time, was publicly talking about how we can use skilled nursing facilities as backstops for hospital capacity. We can send, and they issued waivers so people could go directly to Correct. the skilled nursing facility without Correct. a hospital stay. Right. In Medicare, just to let listeners know, people usually have to go to the hospital for a three-day stay before they could uh, be transferred to a skilled nursing facility or a nursing home, but they eliminated that under these circumstances. I just wanted to make that clear for listeners in case they didn't understand that. Yeah, that's a very good point. And so that is really the story was there was an overwhelming sense that the hospital system could collapse at any moment. And they made every decision, public health officials in New York and elsewhere at the federal government in different states, they made every decision based on that guiding principle. And so it became very clear that the nursing homes were not willing, were, were not able to handle it. But 
they were, you know, the nursing home lobby in New York, I can point you to an interview my colleague Maggie Flynn did with the president of the New York State um, Healthcare Facilities Association. That's the lobbying and trade group for New York. And he was saying, you know, this is extremely problematic. We, we don't have enough PPE. We, we don't even, you know, we, we don't, we want to create COVID wards for people who want the wards mm-hmm. for people who only have COVID, but we can't because we don't really have access to testing. So to, it was a mess from the beginning. It was a bad decision. And the cover up uh, is the worst part of the crime, in my opinion, the fact that they made a mistake and didn't own up to it. Um, and that to me though, is the, when you talk about the finger pointing and the blaming, that to me is the biggest recurring theme in nursing homes is no one can step up and say, you know what, that was a bad policy. That was a bad idea. We need to come up with a way to fix it. It's always just, uh, no, this one person or this one lobbying effort was the death of all these people. And it's not, it's frequently people making bad decisions, policy that's misguided, um, and sure, neglect, abuse, uh, uh, operators who only care about the money, all that stuff exists. But right. to say that that's the root cause of what of everything that went wrong, uh, it's it's just an oversimplification of, of something. And and this gets to something that frustrates me a lot is there's the, you, you mentioned the PPE issue. There's been a lot of talk about preventability. How many of these deaths were preventable? Um, and I think- No way of, I can just say, no, there's, there's no way of knowing that. No, there I, isn't. I think that's even a foolish road to go down. I, I, yeah, I, I generally agree. I think the deaths were preventable in the sense if we had made the changes to the long-term care infrastructure that have been desperately needed for 10, 20, 30 years, Correct. That's if we've been constantly improving them, then yes, I think we would have gotten to a space where maybe people, lawmakers and policymakers better understood what nursing homes can and cannot do, and then they wouldn't have sent all of these people in there. Maybe there would have been a lot more greenhouse alternatives to send people to where you weren't warehousing people in a 300 bed facility that is basically just designed to spread germs around. Uh, so if we had had you know years of investment in making the kind of infrastructure upgrades and regulatory upgrades that have been necessary all this time, then yes, it's preventable. But from the time the, the new coronavirus hit the the shores of the United States and got started getting into nursing homes. I think the match was lit, the the grass was dry, the rags were oily, and I think <laughs> you weren't really going to prevent a lot of the deaths once it had already started because there had been so little investment, so little uh, serious soul searching about what we want senior care to look like. Uh, and that uh, go ahead. Sorry, uh, I no go ahead. Sorry, no no no. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Right. <laughs> No, and that's my final, that, that's kind of my final point about why we need to have more comprehensive discussions and honest discussions about reform, because if we don't make these kinds of hard decisions and long-term investments, we're just going to end up being at the exact same spot when the next threat comes. I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I just want to make a note for listeners, everybody's at home right now. So there's a phone ringing, there was a phone ringing in the background, and then there was the uh, backup sound from, I think it's an Amazon truck. That was backing backing into the little cul-de-sac where I live. So if anybody hears those noises in the background, but everybody's working from home now, and sometimes there are cats and children and phones ringing and all kinds of things. But I I just wanted to um, say about that the um, it's I, and it's important for if any of this is going to be addressed. At, and you you mentioned the word warehousing. I think there's not that people intentionally think that way, but there is this way of thinking that these are older people over there. They're kind of at the end of their lifespan and they're living in that place that's secluded. And 
they're not really thought about to a great degree in a, in a societal way, unless it's your family member or somebody you know, or something happens. Uh, I think it would be very important in order for some of this to be addressed or rectified, if, if it can even be rectified, because there's an increasing older population and how are we going to care for all of these older people is an issue, um, which is all parties have to sit down at the table. So it's, it's providers and policymakers and caregivers and owners and administrators and personnel all sitting together to address these issues, to see, you know, what what solutions are available. Are are there solutions in the present environment? Maybe these environments have to change somewhat. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think the coming together part is that is really important. I, I wrote last summer um, a, a piece calling for restorative and transformative justice around uh, nursing homes, and that is this idea that you know you can't really get a sense of justice for people who've died unless you commit to improving the conditions that led to that and making sure that you, that it's not just punitive, right? It's not just the lawsuits. It's about coming together and having these discussions. I think some of the problem is that some of the loudest uh, resident advocates and critics of the industry see any kind of collaboration like that as somehow, you know, being under the spell of the nursing home lobby mm. or, you know, being in the pocket of big nursing home. Uh, I get it from both ends. I've been, you know, criticized for being too critical on the industry. I've been criticized for being, you know, an industry shill. Um, but really, the I'm neither of those things. I care about people and I care about real improvements. And uh, you're right, we're not going to get anywhere unless we all sit down and say, what do you want? What? And part of the issue is that there are, I mean, believe it or not, there are plenty of people who were satisfied at the at, at minimum satisfied with their long-term care provider. People, there are people who are satisfied with what kind of services they get. That's true. Um, there was a great article, um, forget who wrote it, but it was um, a, pro a long profile of the facility in Kirk Kirkland, Washington, where the first right. outbreak was. And it was really interesting to see the different perspectives on the facility. They interviewed a bunch of family members mm -hmm. and some of the family members said, this place is a house of horrors. I can't believe it. This is the worst place, you know, that what they're doing here is criminal. And then some of the people said, oh, they were so friendly. My mom loved the place. It was a great, perfect place for her. And, you know, w the staff really was, was wonderful and they got overwhelmed and we just feel so bad. So there are all these different perspectives and again, because of the way the media works, you get the loudest perspectives on either end. You get the, the industry demanding, we need more money and we, we did nothing wrong. And you'll get the resident advocates saying this is criminal and we need to throw people in jail and any asking them for any advice is like letting the inmates run the asylum. Yeah, so, I agree 100%. I, when I work with families or uh, do any kind of consulting and I tell them, uh, if they go to, well, now people can't go look at a, at a building because you're not allowed into buildings because of COVID. But beforehand, I would tell people, don't judge by what you see. Uh, the, uh, the accoutrements, the, the uh, you know, there's something called the chandelier effect, you know, the lobby, uh, mm -hmm. how a short-term rehab um, unit looks. Don't really judge by that because I have been in, worked in some buildings that were old and I don't want to use the word decrepit, but they, they certainly could have used a, a lift, right? A facelift. Mm -hmm. And yet that some of those buildings had far better care or they certainly had good care 
than as opposed to some other buildings that maybe looked more modern and contemporary. And so you, you can't really judge. So that doesn't surprise me what you said about Kirkland, the families in Kirkland, because I would say in every building that I've worked in, there are always people that may think that the building is great. And it depends on who your caregiver is and maybe what part of the building you're at or, or what your own preferences are. I mean, I've been in places <laughs> where I think the food is horrible and I'll go to see a resident and they'll tell me the food here is delicious. Listen, go figure. I always say, I'll tell them in the kitchen. I'm sure they'll be thrilled to hear that. <laughs> we all have our own tastes and preferences and experiences. So it depends. It just depends. Exactly. And I think if there is a big problem, it's that the long-term care industry is uh, and landscape that we have is very one size fits all, right? It's very much, right. we're going to jam you into this model, whether you like it or not, you're going to sit in this hospital room, you're going to have a roommate, um, you're going to do things when we tell you, because that's how life is. And for some people, they like they might like that kind of structure. Other people, uh, like me, I think, would definitely chafe against that. Right, um, <laughs> but it's interesting, you know, I... I, I Earlier this year, I wrote another op-ed kind of talking about how we really do need a lot more investment in the physical plant of these facilities. Um, and it was kind of tied to this idea of value-based care. That's kind of the big buzzword if you're a policymaker. Um, right. It's all about paying for outcomes, right? That's right. that's what, this was in response to Seema Verma, the, the former CMS administrator. As she was leaving, she wrote kind of this op-ed uh, on her way out saying, you know, we really need more value-based. We need to pay more for outcomes for nursing home residents. Um, right now, only 2% of Medicare is based on outcomes. And that's the SNF VBP model. We don't have to get into that, but it's right. a very small percent. It's a very small small percentage right. of what nursing homes actually uh, make. So um, my response to that was, you know, do we really need to pay for outcomes or really should we be focused on paying for quality of life? And I think right. that's the better, you know, this is a home for people. This is a home for people uh, of many ages, not just the elderly. We want, you know, I, I don't think you can use the same uh, mindset of we need to pay for outcomes when really the out, the best outcome is a comfortable end of life, is a comfortable recovery. That's all, that's uh, especially for long-term care, we need to be paying more for the inputs that make a difference. So that is frontline staffing, that is uh, infection control, that is private rooms. But again, you mentioned the preference thing. I was on, um, I was on LinkedIn. I posted the story on LinkedIn and I got a comment from someone who said, well, you know, what if, um, you know, my grandmother wanted a roommate because she gets lonely. So maybe that, you know, a private room might not work well for her. And, you know, I said, that's a great point. Maybe you don't want to your own private room. I know I'm going to tell you right now, wherever I am, I want my own bedroom. I'm not sharing a bedroom with a stranger. I did that in college and I'm never doing that again. I'm an only child. It's hard enough as it was for a couple of years. But, um, but that's my personal preference. Maybe you want a roommate. Um, maybe so often I feel like the needs of the current residents, the people who are actually there get lost in this shuffle about how do we fix what went wrong last time? How do we hold people accountable? And so often the people who are actually living in the facilities, um, their voices aren't heard. And I, I thought there was a great, um, I forget the name of the documentary, but it was um, someone made a, a documentary about COVID hitting a residential nursing home, but it was also for younger people with disabilities in New York City. And I read an interview with uh, some of the residents of that facility uh, about the documentary. And one of the things that really struck me about it was they were saying, we don't want COVID to end 
this community. We want to make sure that we have options because these are younger people who have disabilities. Living alone with a home care aide might be safer in terms of uh, infection control, but maybe that's not what you want. Maybe you don't want to have your whole life be just you living on your own. Maybe you want to be in a community with people who understand what it's like to have chronic health conditions or physical disabilities or mental health problems. You know, maybe that's what you, maybe you want that. And right. so that to me has to be at the heart of any reform. And that would start with moving away from this outcomes-based metric where we're penalizing and rewarding facilities for how few people they send to the hospital. Right. And we make it more like, you know, do, how about we reward you for having uh, over and above RN staffing? How about we right. reward you right. for uh, having private rooms? Why don't we give you more money to develop, you know, more uh, to develop infection control staff? You know, the, the, this is, it's hard to kind of shove post-acute and long-term care into the wider metrics that we, the wider framework that we use to, uh, that we use to evaluate other kinds of healthcare because uh, outcomes, success, quality, those things have different meanings when this is your home and you're just trying to stay safe and happy. I, I agree a hundred percent. I think I saw that documentary. I think it was John Louis from MSNBC who uh, made that documentary, if I remember correctly, possibly. But anyway, uh, I think, we need to take a short break, but when we come back, I want to continue this conversation about quality of life, about individual preferences, about alternative models. You talked about infrastructure, and, and we talked about some older nursing homes and really what's possible and what's not possible, what's not feasible for older buildings, because it's just not feasible that all of these buildings can be converted to private rooms. So we're going to take a short break on Senior Straight Talk and we'll come back with Alex Spanko where we're having a very lively conversation about long-term care. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Phyllis Amon, owner of Phyllis Amon Associates, provides strategic solutions to families seeking care for their loved ones and coaches them to become more effective advocates. Her expertise comes from working in over 45 nursing homes. Phyllis, known for her passion, empathy, high-quality care standards, and quality life for older adults, is an experienced educator, speaker, and trainer. She's bridged the gap from healthcare to public and private sector businesses on topics from communication, caregiving, empathy, and novel approaches to team building and leadership. All of Community Services is a 501c3 that provides culturally appropriate services to seniors, their family, and the community. Through their interactive programs, Olive engages participants physically and mentally with a focus on building strength, mobility, and mental health. To learn more, get involved, or make a donation, visit olivecs.org. Together, let's live, learn, and thrive. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are tuned in to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Heyman. If you'd like to leave us a question or comment about our program, please feel free to email the host at phyllis at seniorstraighttalk.com. Now, back to Senior Straight Talk. 
Welcome back to Senior Straight Talk. I'm here again with Alex Banco from Skilled Nursing News, and we're having a, a terrific discussion. Uh, a little bit of a different viewpoint because Alex is a journalist, so he sees things from a different vantage point than a lot of the other guests I have on the show who are more from the policy end or uh, from the, the advocacy end of it. But a journalist kind of has a, well, I guess what you could say maybe... I want to say a more balanced view, but some people might object to that. So I don't really know. <laughs> a bigger picture, bigger okay, picture. Okay, bigger I, picture. I, I, bigger picture. Uh, oh, I think we had um, I think we had a conversation about this once about the perspective, being that we both went to Emerson College, uh, about the ele- elephant analogy, looking at an elephant, but oh, and it has a lot to do with perspective. So wh- I I first heard it at Emerson College. I won't say what year it was. That professor was actually my mentor, and you heard it many years later. So why don't you tell the story? Because you're closer to it than I am. Yeah, this is this is a really good analogy, and it's it's the parable of uh, the three blindfolded men who they're each uh, touching an elephant, but they're touching different parts of the elephant, and they each come away with a different uh, perspective on what they think this animal looks like. But because they can't see it and they can't see the big picture, you know, one that one person thinks it's a snake because he's touching the trunk, and one person thinks it's a mouse because he's feeling the end of the tail and it's soft. So you know, what I like to think is I see. You know, everybody has an agenda, uh, whether it's an advocate or a policymaker or a provider, they all have their own agendas. And, and my point is generally to try to get through that agenda and just present the information that is happening so we can kind of take things from a more holistic view. And I think that really segues well into what we were talking about before the break about the infrastructure mm-hmm. question. And so one of the things that, you know, you hear a lot from advocates is the industry doesn't need any more money because they're hiding it behind all of these LLCs. And that's not necessarily untrue. We don't really have a good accounting of where a lot of the money goes. And I think that should be, uh, I think it's a no brainer reform effort to require more transparency, to require more reinvestment in your physical plants as part of your uh, Medicaid reimbursement. Um, and then the other uh, comment you see a lot is there, we don't need to do any other reform other than enforcing the rules that are in place better. Mm. And my response to that is, you know, you are looking at the part of the elephant that's all about rulemaking and enforcement. And you're frustrated by the, correctly frustrated by some of the lax enforcement that has been going around. Maybe you don't like, you don't agree with the you don't agree with the fact that the industry tends to be anti-regulation. And I think that's a fair criticism to have. But uh, you're not seeing the bigger picture, which is I do not want to live in the most highly regulated, cleanest, most compliant four bedroom nursing home ward, four bed (laughs) nursing home ward. I don't want to do that. It might be the best. It might comply with the rules the best. It might be beautiful, but that's not how I want to age. I don't think that's how anyone wants their mother or father or loved one to age. They still want them to have independence and dignity. Um, So sure, you can enforce the rules as they are on the books, but that's not getting rid of that's not getting rid of multi-bedrooms. Uh, that's not getting getting rid of shared shower facilities and bathing right. facilities. You know, I've heard stories, and I'm sure you've seen it, of, you know, people lining up in a hallway for a shower. Uh, that's not dignified. That these are That's not at all quality of life. And I'm sure in many places that's completely compliant with all applicable rules. C- correct. I mean, I've been in buildings when the state survey team came, and that was happening. And... Yeah, like you say, if if you can check off all the boxes and all of those boxes are being met, 
then then that's okay. But that doesn't mean in terms of quality of life or real dignity, if that really meets that standard. Yeah, and to me, it flatly does not. Right. Uh, again, to go back to your point, if you want to share a room with someone and that should be an option for you because the care should be patient-centered, that's fine. But the default should not be, yeah, this is compliant because we need to, this is the building we have and we've always done it this way, so let's jam three beds uh, in this room and it's all perfectly legal and compliant. Um, one, of the, one of the most striking bits of trivia that I've heard about all of this was I was early in the pandemic, this was probably last April or May, I was watching a news conference um, from Massachusetts, uh, obviously because I have connections there, I lived in Boston for many years. Um, the governor, uh, Charlie Baker has been, I believe he was involved in, in, in some level with the investment in, in long-term senior care facilities, I think mostly independent and assisted living. So he, he knows the industry and so he would often talk during his uh, weekly update press conferences, he would talk about the issues with a little bit different perspective because he had worked with the industry before. And so one of the questions was a good one, which was why are there double rooms still in nursing facilities? What is this? And the answer was the state health department, um, the state health secretary said, well, actually, you know, it's been illegal in Massachusetts since the early 2000s to build new skilled nursing facilities with single rooms, but no one has built any new there hasn't really been a lot of development and all of the old ones got grandfathered in under the old rules. So can I ask um, why did he ever say why that was? Oh, just because there was not, there really has not been new development in terms of, so no, the old buildings, no, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I had, he said, he said that it wasn't legal to build new buildings with double rooms. Is that what you said? Yeah, or maybe it was triple or quad. Like oh, okay, there, there okay. was some, there was some restriction on okay. in, the, in the in the in the building code. Okay. I may and, have Okay. Yeah, and the answer was well, uh, yeah, we really haven't changed much because no one's really developed these new buildings. Right. We're kind of stuck with the same buildings that existed before that before that mandate. And so I think that was really that was a very revealing comment. Uh, is that you can mandate this kind of stuff, but right. you can't actually unless you have a wider vision of reform, you can't actually uh, snap your fingers and make people build these facilities if they think that they don't work. And so part of my other perspective is I deal with, a, I talk with a lot of financial folks uh, who invest in skilled nursing facilities. And the number one thing they always tell me is, you know, we'd love to do this, but it doesn't pencil out. Right, uh, right. We, we can't do this. And look, again, um, I have to mention this because it's one of my biggest pet peeves about the coverage is when people use for profit, like it's some kind of gotcha for nursing homes, as though we don't live in a profit driven healthcare landscape broadly. You know, I get <laughs> I get health insurance through my job. Uh, that health insurance is not doing it for the love of billing codes. They're doing right. it to make a profit. Uh, right. I see a primary care physician through a major hospital network here in Chicago. They're making money. The whole system is profit driven. And I am all for having big, 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 big picture conversations about how we can fix nursing home care and healthcare in general. But the fact of the matter is this is a system that we have now. When people say it doesn't pencil out uh, uh, building a new from scratch, private room, long-term care community. What they mean is that under the current structure, it just doesn't work. The developer wouldn't make the profit he would make. The land broker wouldn't make the development, make the profit she would make. The ongoing profits from Medicaid rates as they are now would not be enough to support the math that goes behind it. And so 
Sorry, go ahead. No, I, I was, I, I'm sorry. I just wanted to interject something. There are, and, and we could talk about this after you finish your point, but I, I didn't want to forget it. There are the greenhouse models, uh, the Eden Alternative, mm -hmm. and there is one actually in Massachusetts, the Lennon Florence Center for Living, which is really fantastic. It's the first urban greenhouse, and it is built in this individual room. Uh, each... Oh, floor is is a home they call it a home because it's not a unit and uh, each floor has approximately 12 rooms private rooms and they're like stacked on top of each other if you want to call them pods in a way um and that's part of a non-profit organization it's the united uh the jewish philanthropies i believe mm -hmm. but um you know like you said uh the, the the industry is a for-profit industry. I never e also said that it shouldn't be a for-profit industry. I just said, I just say that care of the bottom line shouldn't supersede care for people. I don't believe in all these situations that that better care couldn't be provided under that business model. I, I No, I'm not looking at the balance sheet, so I can't really say. I'm just thinking that I think there may be a better way with the funds that they have. I could be wrong. Yeah, and I, and I think that is part, you know, you mentioned you can't see the balance sheets. Uh, we, there isn't a lot of transparency around it. We don't have a good, uh, I, we don't really have a good accounting of where all the money necessarily goes all the time. And I think any reform needs to have way more transparency about who owns the facilities, how much money is going into operations, who's paying a related party entity. I think there should be plenty of transparency around that. Um, and I think that should be part of any reform effort. But as currently stated, this is why, this, let's go back to the, 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 the way that it's always framed, which is the industry needs more money versus no, it doesn't. Um, it, we, it's going to take a lot to build the kind of infrastructure that our elders deserve. And you, you can't necessarily retrofit a building that was built, a 300 bed building uh, that was built to hold two and three and four people per room. You might not be able to retrofit that into something modern with modern infection control standards, with modern touches. You might not be able to. So you, you're looking at knocking a building down, bringing it, you know, building something completely new. None of this is cheap. And so we need to make sure that any regulatory and payment reform keeps in mind that, yeah, sure, maybe the industry doesn't need more funding if you want to keep running these buildings the way they are. But if you actually want to improve things and you want to create something better than what we have, it's going to take a lot. And the regulatory, to quickly mention the regulatory side of this, um, I've spoken with Susan Ryan from the Greenhouse Project. I've spoken with uh, people who are developing uh, greenhouses. I think they are the future. I think it's such an awesome model. So um, I really... I think I, I, I really hope to see more expansion on that. But the regulatory side also has to evolve, too, because that doesn't look like a nursing home on the, the uh, health department checklist. Uh, I've heard great stories about, you know, they wanted to put a fireplace into one of these small homes. And it took back and forth over and over and over again with the local fire department and the health department to sign off on having a fireplace in a nursing home. You know, that's such an easy no for a regulator right, right. off the top of the bat. Um, or 
uh, I spoke with someone who talked about a nursing facility that ran into trouble. They wanted to allow uh, their residents to bring in furniture from home, you know, a couple of pieces of furniture to really make their room feel more like home. And that was a health violation. Uh, you know, you couldn't have outside furniture because that was against the rules. And so these little stories like little stories like that are what, you know, that's what stops me when I, or that's what frustrates me when I hear this argument that, oh, we just have to enforce the rules we have because it's it's not just that. I'm sure we, there is lax enforcement. There are ways to skirt really important rules and that should be part of it, but you can't present it as this binary of, we either need more rules or less rules. It's, uh, it, 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 it's much more complicated than that. Absolutely. And uh, listen, I've been in places where there, there are rules, but that doesn't mean also that those rules are enforced or What's, a, what's an important rule? I'm not saying there are rules that aren't important, but there are, I have seen facilities be cited for things that are so inconsequential to the large scheme of care that some of these things need to be looked at more closely to see what's really important from what isn't important, I think. I yeah. really do believe that, that the basis of the root cause, I should say, of a lot of the issue is how we think about older people and what we think older people are entitled to and what is a society we have an appetite for from a financial point of view in terms of paying for that for that strata of the population. Yeah, and, and look, it goes down to, it comes down to free will and, you know, how much uh, autonomy do you have as a person? You mentioned that. How do we see older people? I mean, look at the year of lockdowns we've seen in facilities and how that really has not, uh, that decision really has not reflected a desire to treat older people who live in nursing homes as autonomous people capable of making their own Correct. decisions. Um, look, it's, I supported the lockdowns. You can go back and look. One of I, I one of my earliest things that I wrote about it was trying. I wrote a piece trying to call on the industry to be really open about why they were locking down it last March, but also to residents and their families to accept it uh, for as a short term uh, emergency situation. I thought it was going to last two weeks or a month at that time. So yeah, I support it. Yeah, yeah here we are a year later. Yeah. Yeah. And what's at the heart of that decision where you make that decision and then you never actually go back and revise it. It's not treating people who live in these facilities like they have any uh, autonomy over what they want to do in their lives. Well, it's so, very interesting you say that because, well, of course, the greenhouse model is all about um, giving people autonomy and having them have that kind of respect uh, for making decisions for their lives. Uh, for those people who don't know about it, they could look up uh, the Greenhouse Model or Pioneer Network, The Eden Alternative, Bill Thomas's first book. I think it was his first book, A Life Worth Living, is about, uh, it's talk about rules that change, is how he transformed this small nursing home in upstate New York and brought in animals and plants. And it was really quite an extraordinary feat. So when you say about people following rules, how he got people to buy into that uh, and uh, how he was allowed to do it, I, I can't even imagine, but that's how all of this kind of came about. But it shows what the possibilities are. And um, just what you say to me, it's a lot about uh, 
you know, I use the term, people use the term, I put my mother in a place or so-and-so put their mother someplace. And I think that's part and parcel of the whole attitude, which is that we put people someplace. And when you put something someplace or put somebody someplace, they automatically lose their autonomy. They're less than a person. Yeah. And right. And, and, and that that is a bigger point, too, where I think we don't value um, this kind of care and we don't actually want to have serious conversations and we don't actually want to have a big groundswell of, of um, support and uh, desire for change. It's because this is ultimately a, serv- ultimately a service that nobody wants, right? Right. Um, you look in um, whether you're a resident or a family member. This is a, I, I encourage everybody the next time you're reading a local news story about a problem at your local news, nursing home, maybe you see it on Twitter or Facebook, go into the comments and count how many people say, I would never put my mother in a nursing home. I can't believe people would do that. Um, you know, uh, my mom is staying at home with me. She took care of me and I'm not letting her be in anybody else's care but mine. And I completely understand that uh, mindset, but I feel like that hits at something that is another reason why we never have a bunch uh, we never really have changes because no one actually wants these services right. or wants to think about them until they actually need them. Uh, and then they become a godsend for people. My my personal story about this is when I was uh, when I was in college, my great aunt, uh, who was kind of like a grandmother figure to me, um, required more care than she could have at home. She had um, multiple sclerosis. She was living alone after her husband, my great uncle, died. She'd been living alone for five, six, seven years. Um, she eventually needed to have both legs amputated due to the MS. Uh, she was living alone in this little house on top of a hill in Vermont, and it was becoming untenable. The, the family members who were the closest to her to provide care, her two daughters, um, they were busy. They had jobs of their own. One of them was well out of state. Uh, she was calling the ambulance service three times a week. Every time she had a problem, she was having trouble transferring from the wheelchair into bed. Uh, and it was just an untenable situation. She could not continue living on her own. And around the clock care wasn't really an option because she was a social person and she wanted to be around other people. And so my family made the decision to put her in an assisted, or put her, as I said, to right, move her into an right. assisted living facility. I do it too, and I cover the industry. Right. Uh, they decided to move her to uh, an assisted living and nursing campus, a nonprofit in uh, Vernon, Vermont. It's called the Vernon Homes. I want to give them a shout out because they did such great work with her. And the first time I went to go visit, I was 18, 19, and I was really, really upset. You know, I, I can't believe you would do this to Aunt Gloria. You would put her in a home. Uh, you know, that's so sad. Why can't she live on her own anymore? And obviously I was 18 and 19. I, did, I didn't know what kind of strain she was putting on the rest of the family and right. how she was deeply unhappy. She didn't want to be dependent on her daughters for, uh, for everything that she needed. She didn't want to feel helpless and alone. And so I was really opposed to it. And finally, we went to go visit her for the first time. And I was terrified. I thought she was going to, I thought it was going to be like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. <laughs> and it was very, very pleasant. She had her own private room. I saw the way they interacted with her. They really cared. They all had their own jokes with her. She had, there were, uh, there were uh, those packed activity calendar. She was able to, uh, the, the local priest came by, which was very important to her because she was a very devout Catholic. And I saw all of these services and I saw the way she interacted with people and I saw, we ate the food and, all of it was so great. And I saw the relief in my, in my family members' eyes and my mm. aunt's eyes, the people who had been taking care of her. I saw the relief and I saw how much they were all happier with this situation and how it really worked better for them. 
And so whenever I write about policy or wherever, whatever I write about wanting to affect change, that is the kind of change that I, that I have, that I, I keep that story in the back of my mind. Right. Because I want to make sure that just like that facility for people with disabilities in New York, that these options continue for people who need them. Right. Uh, that they are able to get that kind of service. And the, the fact that my grandma, when my great aunt went into the facility, it was like we were all a family again. They weren't caregivers anymore. They weren't worrying about what's the, when is the next time I'm going to get a call at two in the morning about right. her falling or her tra- you know, being admitted to the hospital again. Um, and so people, but again, people don't realize that until it's in their face. They don't right. know that it's happening until they go through it themselves. I, I, I re- I recall a, um, I think it was 60 Minutes had a program, this is quite a number of years ago, and they were um, f- doing a profile of this, this couple. Uh, the woman had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's or dementia, and uh, they, they did this 10-year study, really, video study. I don't know why they selected this couple or who they were related to. That's not important. But the first year they went, she she was kind of okay. And then a few years later, she was starting to lose her memory a little bit. And and then she couldn't cook anymore. And then a few years later, it was more. And then and the husband had t- promised her that he would never move her into a nursing home. That's not something he would do. He would take care of her forever. They were married for however many years, 40 or 50 years. But then as her dementia progressed and she became more physically impaired and frail and dependent, he needed to have somebody help him with her. And I remember at this one point, he said he almost felt like committing suicide. He just couldn't do it anymore. The demands were so great. And then after a while, there were two caregivers that were needed because he was an older person as well. So he as she became more frail and more dependent, he really couldn't assist anymore. Finally, and it was towards the end, he really felt he had no choice and he had to move her into a nursing home and she died shortly thereafter. But the point of the story is just what you say, that people say they will never do this thing. Maybe there are family uh, expectations, religious, cultural, societal, and, or they make promises to people, but sometimes the situation occurs where that's just not feasible any longer. And so there will always be a need for nursing homes. There will always be a place for nursing homes in our society. It's just a question of what kind of places are they going to be? Exactly. And, and that is at the heart of all the work that I do and all the, um, what I really try to say to people when they ask me, when they know this is what I do for a living, um, I really try to make people understand that is that you're not going to ever get rid of the need for this kind of care, but the question should always be, how can we improve it? How can we make it so that maybe one day you don't have to make that kind of promise? Maybe one day you can actually say, don't worry about it. There are all of these great options that are there for you and we will explore them together and it won't be seen as a fate worse than death to end up at a nursing home. So I'm glad you just said that because I always encourage people to have this conversation at some point, as they have parents that are maybe getting a little older, because you want to be prepared if that situation occurs. I think if COVID taught us anything, is that there were many people who wound up in hospitals or in nursing homes who never thought they would be. They wound Mm -hmm. up on ventilators, and they never even dreamed of such a thing. They didn't even know what a ventilator was. I could tell you that 
myself, I haven't had these conversations and I work in this industry also, but I'll just tell you uh, before we, we come to a conclusion here, when COVID first started and it was all about people having to go on ventilators, the respiratory a condition that was a side effect or part of COVID. And my specialty for many, many years was working with people who are ventilator dependent, who have respiratory issues and trach tubes. It's actually a passion of mine. And my daughter texted me one day and said, uh, would you go on a ventilator? Because we've never discussed this. And I said, absolutely not. And she said, I thought so, because she knows the work that I've done my entire life. But then a few minutes later, she texted me again and said, are you sure? Even if they said it was just for a short period of time until you could get better? I said, I have to think about it. So, and we never had that conversation again since, but we should have the conversation because like I said, if any COVID taught us anything is you don't know what's going to happen. You don't, and and this is something that I also preach um, because I, I went through it myself personally. My mother passed away unexpectedly of a stroke. I was I was only 23 and she, was, uh, she raised me as a single mom, so she was my only parent. I was her only kid. We never had those conversations. We didn't know. And so I, you know, I, I only found out that she had a DNR, for example, after she died. We never had the conversation. I found the paperwork when I was going through her things. Do you want to and say so, what a DNR is for the listeners? Oh, who a, not know? A, a do not resuscitate. Right. So, okay. you know, I just want to make sure if, that the listeners know what that is. Right. Of course. And so I remember I went through all the different scenarios in my head. You know, what if she had a stroke and she didn't die, but she was on a ventilator and I wouldn't have known to go through her papers uh, to find, I wouldn't have known what to do. I had to make a ton of decisions mm -hmm. about, you know, funeral arrangements and all that kind of stuff without any idea of what she really wanted because we never discussed it. And so it's something that I try to tell people my age, you know, I was, I was on the younger side having to go through it and my situation was unique and not having, you know, it was just me and her. Um, but the more you have these conversations, so much of, I think the frustration and the anger and, um, the finger pointing, a lot of it is based on the fact of we just don't talk about this stuff. We don't right. have a plan going in. Um, we don't have a plan going in. Things do not go the way you think they're going to go. And then you look for you look for someone to blame. And now does that mean that there aren't, I want to be very clear about this. Uh, does, that, does that mean that there aren't people who deserve blame, who have done truly bad things in the sector? That is that, that does not mean that. That is absolutely true. There are plenty of individual bad actors who you know deserve to be removed from the industry. There are plenty of individual bad policies that need to be revised. But I feel like so much of the anger and the frustration and the confusion comes from the fact that we don't have these conversations until we're in an incredibly stressful situation right. and you don't know what to do. And part of that is on the nursing homes. I think you know the number one, we talked about how everyone agrees the survey is bad, whether you're a, a resident advocate, a regulator, an operator, a staff member, everybody hates the survey process. They all think there are ways to improve it. Care transitions are another one. You know, I can't right. tell you how many stories I've heard from people where your husband had a stroke and it's three in the morning and the hospital is discharging them and they got to go to a nursing home. Right. And and what do you do? There's a list of, you know, they, they hand you an old list of five facilities in your area with a phone number on it. Uh, you don't know what, what the quality is. You don't know right. what a nursing home even does. And, you know, you are being asked to make these very difficult decisions. So if something does go wrong, and it very well may, or if your loved one's uh, condition doesn't improve, um, 
you're out on an island, you're making these very stressful decisions with minimal information. And I think that's another area where the industry can improve as well is, is really being open and having these resources to help people make decisions. If they haven't had the conversation, we got to help them make the decision better in the moment. I, I agree. I tell people they should plan by choice rather than by crisis because the crisis is going to happen sooner or later. And I'm sure most people don't know that they can find out about, let's say, three or five skilled nursing facilities or nursing homes in their area. And God forbid, if that situation arises, they could go to the hospital discharge planner and say, listen, these are the places I've looked into. They may not all have beds available now, but these are the ones I want to consider. And more than likely, you know, one of them will, will have a, an, available, an availability for their loved ones. So that's, I always tell people to plan by choice, not by crisis. Before we end, Alex, I want uh, you to be able to tell the listeners how people can get in touch with you or learn about skilled nursing news or your wonderful articles and points of view. Great. Yeah. So uh, check us out at skillednursingnews.com. You can sign up for a daily or weekly newsletter with all the headlines you need to know about nursing home policy, finance, and operations. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at News. That's S-P-A-N-K-O news. Um, and feel free to shoot me an email, send me a direct message. Uh, I'd love to talk to any anybody and everybody about these issues. And so thank you, Phyllis, for giving me the platform to talk today. Well, I, I, it's obvious that you're passionate about it and you could talk about it for quite some time. You're obviously very knowledgeable and I could talk to you about it forever. And uh, I don't know if people would want to listen to us talk about this forever, but we <laughs> certainly can. So at this juncture, I have to say thanks to our listeners and thanks to you, Alex, for sharing your time today for the enlightening conversation, for the valuable work you do and the invaluable information that you provided. I, I'd like to say to Thank my you. listeners, please join us next time on Senior Straight Talk for more informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. And please remember to like, click, and share our episodes. And until next time, stay safe, stay well, and stay tuned. Thank you for listening to Senior Straight Talk. Join your host, Phyllis Amon, again soon for another episode on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or your favorite podcast platforms.